like when I was growing up, I remember back then, I was still in primary school. If you wake up in the morning, you feel energetic. Very nice environment, I still remember vividly. So many forests, everywhere you get there is forest all around. You just love the surrounding, Every, the birds will be chipping off, singing. I'm sure if I go back to Nigeria now, the feeling is just not the same. Even that sort of atmosphere, it has changed. Most of those forests, they've turned it into residential areas. They've cut down the trees. That back then, I don't know anything about climate change. But now that I'm much more older and know what climate change is, and I kind of compare to them. I know climate change is happening. It's a big dramatic difference, dramatic difference, no doubt. If the world doesn't cut its carbon emissions to zero by 2050, global warming of about 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will mean increasingly drier lands, with the migration of thousands searching for resources like water. Climate-related insecurity will affect those most vulnerable, living in developing nations and poor societies, seeing strained institutions and exacerbated tensions leading to conflict. In Christopher Odiyemi's home country, Nigeria, locals say the changing climate is already the main trigger of conflicts in the region. Some say that when people have nothing to eat, they will be ready to take up a gun to survive. On today's episode... As the most vulnerable citizens bear the brunt of the climate crisis, confronted with civil conflict and forced to migrate as climate refugees, will the international community come to their aid? This is Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatsel. In Nigeria, the effects of a warmer climate has compounded already existing competition for farmland in the country, seeing bloody clashes between farmers and nomadic herders the internal migrations of those in the country may lead to increased vulnerability and exposure to terrorism. Some politicians are warning potential for a resurgence from militant Islamic group Boko Haram. Known as the Nigerian Taliban, the group's goal is to institute Islamic law, and they're responsible for killing over 30,000 Nigerians since 2009. When there is drought, there is famine, there is not enough water, yes, people are going to suffer. And that can lead to civil disobedience, to civil violence. So in a sense, we can see the impact of climate change in an indirect connection. Chris from Nigeria is researching whether international bodies central to the climate crisis are adequately preparing for climate insecurity for his PhD at UTS. And as it turns out, significant barriers still remain. The Security Council, whose role is to maintain international peace and security, for instance, still fail to recognise conflict resulting from climate change. Linking climate change to civil conflict, I mean direct evidence, it's a very difficult thing to prove. So that is why it's difficult to table it at the Security Council. They've held about five formal debates on it for sure, 
but it all ended in stalemate. There is no agreement to move forward. So the problems have been shuffled off to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, who are implementing initiatives like the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. That is, loss and damage from climate change in developing countries. The initiative aims to help those most vulnerable, to educate risk and preventative management to locals and other stakeholders, ensure dialogue and coordination, and encourage action. Chris says based on his research of how international bodies view climate change and security, there's room to do more. There are so many programs trying to address the issue of climate change in general, whatever form, I mean, from which country, from which side. The UNFCCC is doing something about it, no doubt about that. But the general consensus is it's whatever they're doing, that is not enough. Everybody knows what should be done to counteract this problem. But the problem is it's a political issue. How do we reach such an agreement? If we are following processes, procedures, laws, legislations, and at the end of the day, all those things are tied down to funding, to budget, then it's going to be difficult to help people who are displaced. No doubt about that. As the poorest and most climate vulnerable areas are the hardest hit during the climate crisis, a new category of refugees, climate refugees, will see mass migrations across the globe. A report by the World Bank estimates that 143 million people across three developing countries alone, Sub-Sahara Africa, South Asia and Latin America, could become climate migrants by 2050. Vulnerable citizens will migrate from areas with low water availability, crop productivity, rising sea levels and storm surges in search of resources for survival. They may pose a security risk to nations across the globe. Those nations, as well as the international community, may not be doing enough to prepare for their arrival. fairly worst case on, on climate change that we have millions of uh, people fleeing here from Indonesia and Bangladesh because um, because of climate change, rising sea levels, flooding, etc., that the um, those become unlivable places and they certainly have less resources to adapt to climate change than we do. This is Dr Ian McGregor from the UTS Business School. Uh, I have been working and researching climate change for more than 17 years and I'm a particular expert on the global climate change policy process and have worked with one of the least developed countries, Afghanistan, on that process and the group of other 35 other least developed countries. Ian has attended every climate summit since 2011, including the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, which addressed what each country intended to do to address climate change. Many experts say climate change is a direct threat to the national security of Australia, with waves of migration from small island states or storm-affected highly populated areas. On the more negative scenario, you could see um, millions of people trying to flee from those areas and Australia trying to turn back the boats and get into security and conflict issues with Indonesia um, as we try to sort of defend our shores against these um, climate refugees. 
you could argue that what the world has done to these countries by not addressing climate change, which is a problem we've known about for more than 30 years, is persecution, but I don't think uh, an international lawyer would generally uh, view it as such. The moral duty is not a new argument. Bangladesh's environment ministers and other experts have previously stated that, in an ideal world, each country in the future would accept responsibility for their fair share of climate refugees, considering their carbon emission output. Due to climate change alone, it's projected by about 2050 that we could, we could have between about 50 and 350 million climate change refugees around the world. 2050 sounds like a long way off, but it's actually only 30 years. Julian Bolter is the Deputy Director of the Australian Urban Design Research Centre at the University of Western Australia. Julian agrees we may have a moral duty. Given the scale of these extreme projections, we're going to need some fairly extreme responses. By about the 2070s, when, if we're in a fairly unmitigated climate change situation, such as we're currently trending towards, I think in the context of events like that, that we, are, we have a moral um, compulsion to accept far more in the way of humanitarian migrants than we currently are. Given the extreme conditions and moral imperative, Australia may be forced to accommodate for these refugees in the future. But if we don't have a plan in place, experts say Australia could be overwhelmed by the scale of the national security problem. We could build much more climate-proof cities, um, have increased settlement in the northern parts of Australia, uh, enhance our agriculture in those regions, um, and have um, large cities that house these climate change refugees and create new industries. Building large cities housing climate refugees is an idea Julianne has been looking into. Refuge City is a way of, kind of creatively engaging with migration, not just as a problem to be solved, but something that's also a creative can do the right thing, but we can also use it as a creative springboard to build cities unlike what they built today. Julian and Ken Parrish from Charles Darwin University came up with the idea of a city that would provide refuge and opportunity for migrants above and beyond what Australia already accepts through its humanitarian migration program. The urban model would be on Australia's northern coast, close to Indonesia, and with a wide availability of mineral and energy resources. We felt Refuge City and proposals like that have a place beyond just the kind of boosting of regional migration because the numbers we're going to be dealing with by mid-century would appear to be so huge that if you try and direct all the, the migration that arrives in Australia to those regional centres, you're likely to completely overwhelm them. So the idea with Refuge City is rather than just actually um, directing migration towards the capital cities, particularly like Melbourne and Sydney, which have been grown by over 100,000 people a year over the last few years, actually directing them to potentially new cities so that they don't inflame resistance to immigration uh, that we're currently finding is starting to occur in the big cities, where increased migration is linked to traffic congestion and the lack of housing affordability and the like. And actually, you might be better off designing a whole new city from scratch, which is really designed to accommodate large flows of, of immigration to Australia. Though some fear the model will mean cutting up pieces of Australia. For a lot of Australians, their idea of a city is a, a kind of fairly homogenous sprawl 
in which different cultures are fairly evenly dispersed through the city. People are not ready for the idea that our cities might fragment into a kind of cultural island. Now, we're quite comfortable with that because that is just what happens with cities which are extremely multicultural. You get that happening. The main thing is you still get kind of some um, diffusion between cultures and, and overlap and exchange and engagement. That's the main thing. But I could see that some people in Australia wouldn't be quite ready for a model of a city which allows and actually facilitates cultural islands, which allow different cultures to kind of continue to practice to some degree their own way of life. The World Bank has called on Australia to allow for open migration from climate-affected Pacific islands. But successive governments haven't exactly been open to refugees and asylum seekers in recent years. Julian says the idea may be too far-fetched as it currently stands. There's a lot of argument at the moment about whether the term climate change refugee is even a valid term. Because refugees are people who are fleeing persecution. Climate change might feel like it's persecuting you, but you're not literally being persecuted. You have to wonder when we live in a world where we can't even really agree on the nomenclature of climate change refugees, to what degree we're going to be able to develop the global governance systems by which you would actually manage those kind of movements around the world. I think also one of the barriers is people are generally not cognizant of the scale of the issue yet. So they would probably feel like the idea is a little bit heavy-handed, given really the arrival of, of, of boat people. You know, people off boats is, is fairly tiny, you know. Um, so I think it's probably an idea that's slightly ahead of its time. In the lead up to Copenhagen, I was working with Bill McKibben and a pile of other environmental activists with an organization called 350.org. And the reason it's called 350 is actually based on strong scientific evidence and scientific research uh, by um, you know, leading climate scientists working NASA, etc., um, who said, who got asked by Bill, what is the safest, safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere? And they said, probably keeping CO2 below 350. So we've now passed 400. So that we are into dangerous global warming territory. I mean, it is a horrendous problem. And if we don't address it uh, for your generation and my children's generation, you're going to face a very difficult to cope with planet by 2050, especially as we'll probably have about 9 billion people on the planet by then. We're already past 7 billion. An inquiry by the Senate Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade on the implications of climate change for Australia's national security made a number of recommendations for the Commonwealth Government. The Department of Defence to assign a senior leader to oversee the delivery of domestic and international humanitarian assistance and disaster relief as climate pressures increase over time. Some of these points were contested by the Coalition Government, who stated how well the government had been doing on climate change in the defence and foreign affairs portfolios. They claimed that sufficient strategies are in place to ensure Australia's response to the implications of climate change on national security is well understood and consistent across the whole of government.
UNSCR Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.